Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Brett Forrest, author of the new book Lost Son, an American family trapped inside the FBI's secret wars. Uh, Brett, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you for having me, Richard. And congratulations on the book. So who is The Lost Son? The Lost Son is Billy Riley, a young American man who grew up outside of Detroit and came of age after 9-11. The attacks happened while he was in high school. And uh, the attacks really changed the trajectory of his life because he became interested, deeply interested rather, in uh, global religions, international conflict, foreign languages. And uh, he was uh, going through his adolescence while the internet itself was going through his adolescence with the development of social media. And this allowed him to contact people outside of his small town uh, near Detroit who were living lives of great stakes. And this internet traffic brought him to the attention of the FBI. Yeah, and as you say towards the beginning of the book, really this is like any other story you've covered as a Wall Street Journal reporter that involves the murky world of competing intelligence services. But I, I was struck as well that you say that you've never been more personally engaged or exposed uh, you've never been more integral to the actual story itself. Right, because, um, you know, we often write about large governmental agencies, uh, and we also often write about regular people. Uh, but it's, it's rare that we get a chance to combine the two. And uh, that was the great thing about Billy Riley's story, at least from a, a narrative standpoint, is that you could uh, get to know one character, and he could uh, bring you into these incredibly important issues of our time. When he went missing, uh, that created a mystery for his family. And that's when I got personally involved. I set out my own quest to find Billy in Russia. Yeah, as you say there, I mean, he was a young man from near Detroit, deeply affected by 9-11. But, but it's really after the Crimean invasion that he somehow becomes involved in Russia and Ukraine, probably through the FBI. So th this is a bigger story, isn't it? It's not just about Billy, but it's also about how the FBI and what we might describe as amateurs or civilians interact in this murky world. Exactly. Again, to my previous point, this story is a personal story, but it's also the story of how the FBI, after 9-11, began to change fundamentally, began to change from, from being strictly a law enforcement body to an intelligence agency. Capitol Hill and uh, the administration mandated that the FBI do more to prevent a repeat of 9-11. So the, so the FBI went out into the world and started gathering intelligence in ways it had never done before. And in that effort, it scooped up people like Billy, complete amateurs, but people who had uh, skills and access that the FBI thought it could use. For example, Billy taught himself to some degree Arabic and, and Russian languages uh, just at home online. He also followed his, his own personal fascination into the world of global conflict and especially uh, in the Middle East. So when the FBI came in contact with him, they were impressed with his skills that he had developed on his own. And they brought him on board into what's called the Confidential Human Source Program. And as you, as you point out, I mean, in that post 9-11 world, it's curious that the FBI actually comes to look more like the CIA and that 
obviously is not without implications. Exactly. If your listeners may know, when the CIA was created in 1947, President Harry Truman, he mandated that the CIA handle foreign work and the FBI handle domestic work, generally speaking. And that division, that divide lasted for, for many decades. But it was 9-11 that largely undid that division because uh, the FBI and the CIA and other intelligence and law enforcement agencies failed to work together uh, in a way that uh, they could have prevented the 9-11 attacks. So the attacks in their aftermath really loosened the chains that uh, the Truman had put on the two agencies. And you, you began to see them working together in ways that they never had before. So tell us a bit more about Billy. Um, you show in the book uh, what he's like before 9-11 as a, as a young man, the effect of 9-11 on him, uh, but also the impact of the Iraq war, which he's vehemently opposed to. Right. So... Billy was, uh, I guess you could say, an iconoclast. He was, he was of a type, I think. Uh, he was someone who had friends at school, but not, not deep friendships. And he spent a lot of time alone following his own personal fascinations online on his phone and on the computer. He even went so far as to, to convert to Islam. I mean, he was born and raised a Catholic. He was going to a Catholic high school. And he could be seen... Uh, a year after 9-11 and thereafter in the back of classrooms uh, reading the Quran. So a very interesting character. His sister followed some of his own decisions. She, she also converted to Islam. She married a Muslim man and had a family. And when, uh, when the United States invaded Iraq, they were both opposed to it. They saw it as criminal. So they held very interesting uh, opinions, which, which differed greatly from many people around them in the Detroit area. He has an interesting trajectory in many ways. As you explained there, he is deeply affected. He converts to Islam. Uh, you use examples when he goes to an election rally by President George W. Bush in 2004 and stands up and shouts as a kind of a form of protest uh, against uh, the Bush administration. And yet, so how does he end up this character who in many ways seems very alienated from what we might describe as the national security state, how does he end up working with the FBI, doing, in his own words, he, he wants to do something? It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I like the way you describe it. I mean, he goes from being someone who seems to be vehemently opposed to uh, the war on terror, at least to the United States' pursuit of it, uh, to being someone who's sort of a trooper working for American interests in that war. Billy's a really fascinating character. I think the FBI, when you, when you think about Billy, the FBI approached him uh, when he was just graduating college and he didn't quite know what his next steps might be. He, uh, he had a biology degree, an undergraduate biology degree, but he didn't know how he might use it professionally. So he's a bit aimless. And when the FBI came calling, it was sort of an irresistible offer for him because what it did is it, it brought his personal fascinations out of his own bedroom and, and made them worthwhile and valuable. It, it meant that he could finally belong to something. Uh, and what he could finally belong to, at least he thought, was the best law enforcement body in the world. And, and this would grant him access to all sorts of new experiences and lessons that, uh, that he could take forward in life. And maybe give us some examples about how the FBI bring him on board, the kind of things that they're asking him to do. And how, by 2015, he ends up in Russia? Yeah, well, he worked with the FBI for five years before he went to Russia. And it started slowly. It started small, as it would for uh, most confidential human sources, which are referred to as CHSs. 
So his CHS experience began with him uh, working online at home at the direction of his FBI handlers, looking for things in the Middle East, uh, in the digital world uh, that his handlers thought might be of interest and could be plugged into the greater U.S. intelligence system. Billy became very adept, especially after the beginning of the Arab Spring and the emergence of ISIS, at understanding the different factions, players, and personalities. And his, the reports that he filed, which some of them are excerpted in the book, are, uh, are, are really quite stunning in their professional level and understanding of the situation. He then graduated from strict online work to, to field work. Dearborn, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, is, is a large uh, Arab Muslim community there. And the FBI, after 9-11, really focused on that community. And, and Billy's FBI handlers, they set him to work targeting FBI investigative targets, people connected to the Dearborn community. So Billy was approaching them online and then seeing them in real life, uh, using an alias, wearing a wire, and being followed by an FBI tail. And it's interesting that kind of during this period, uh, a very well-known FBI official, uh, Paul Abate, who's now deputy director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was number three during the, the Trump years. He was in the Detroit office when Billy was recruited. I mean, how does this all fit together? Well, it's actually uh, it's fascinating, and it, it, it's even deeper and more fascinating than that, because when Billy was recruited to join the FBI, the... Um, the head of the Detroit office, the FBI Detroit office, was a guy named Andy Arena, who had been integral in the shift in FBI policy with sources after the revelations of the Whitey Bulger case in Boston. Whitey Bulger was the head of the Irish uh, mob in Boston, who was a high-level FBI informant, unknown to most people. And he sort of upended the relationship with the FBI and brought his FBI handlers into criminal conspiracy, including murder. When that came out, Andy Arena, among other FBI officials, went around to FBI offices instructing agents that a new policy mandated that they must drop sources, informants, et cetera, at the moment they felt like the relationship was, was getting out of whack. That is the person for whom Billy signed up to work, and that approach eventually affected him personally. Now, when Billy went to Russia, and when he disappeared there, you're right, a gentleman named Paul Abate was the head of the Detroit office. He subsequently rose quickly through the ranks of the FBI and is currently the number two official. And tell us about how Billy goes uh, missing. I mean, at, at the time, there were all kinds of theories, weren't there, that it's simply been lifted by the Russian security services. Some people said that maybe he'd traveled to Syria to fight in the war there. There were all kinds of theories. And it's a good example of how difficult it is to find out exactly what goes on in a situation like this. Incredibly difficult, especially for the parents who, like pretty much any family that is uh, thrust into such a situation, has no experience, no relevant experience or skill for the task that's suddenly thrust upon them. So, you know, Billy was in Russia for about six weeks, speaking with his parents pretty much every day until one day his communication stopped. And very soon thereafter, his FBI handler came to the door and, uh, and professed ignorance of Billy's travels, confiscated devices from the home, and then shut out the parents. So the parents were really on their own, and they were trying to figure out where their son was, why he had gone to Russia, and if they might be able to find him. And they spent a couple of years on this, fruitless years. They were able to find scraps of information here and there, but they could never put together a coherent picture. 
I was contacted by a source who knew them and who thought I could help them. Uh, there were many theories, like you said. There were theories that he'd gotten involved and gone in to fight in the war in Ukraine, which was then raging. Folks thought that maybe he'd been recruited by the Russian paramilitary group Wagner. Others thought that maybe he had, um, he had sort of defected and was working for uh, the Russian security services. There were many, many theories, uh, and it was, you know, it was very difficult to try and uh, figure out what had happened. And as you say, the parents are, are frantic. The FBI have, have effectively closed them out. Um, they're very reluctant initially to deal with the disappearance publicly. They don't want to tell neighbors. They want to avoid uh, what you describe as those kind of yellow ribbon moments. Uh, they certainly distrust and revile Washington, but they do warm to Donald Trump when he's running for president. They try to get a letter to him, petitioning him to help, and eventually uh, they try to use Fox TV as a way to get in, in contact with him. And it's one of the most remarkable stories in the whole book that they actually managed to make direct contact with Anthony Scaramucci simply by wearing T-shirts saying, son missing in Russia, Mr. Trump help us. Right. Yeah, it is uh, kind of an astonishing episode, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, by the time of the presidential election, that year, uh, Billy had been missing for, for a few years. And the parents' attempts to get government assistance were so frustrating for them that it turned them, it, that, now they were not political people. You know, they were not really interested that deeply in politics. They had a, you know, they, they pretty spotty voting record. They didn't really affiliate with one party or another, but that experience really cauterized uh, their wound. And when Donald Trump announced his candidacy, he started saying things publicly that they were feeling privately. You know, they felt like the government had left them behind. They felt like the government was elitist um, and, and wasn't looking out for them, the common people. And they really warmed to Trump's message. And they, and they actually believed that, that should he be elected, that he was going to cut through a lot of the red tape in government and, and actually provide them a way to, to figure out what happened to Billy. Yeah, as I say, I mean, it is one of those kind of literally jaw-dropping moments uh, in the book that they go from standing outside the Fox News studios to having Billy's case pitched to Michael Flynn, the incoming national security advisor, pretty much within the hour. As you say, in the book, the permeability of the incoming Trump administration uh, was remarkable. It is an incredible, incredible example of just how different politics was in that 2016 election and around it. Right, right. It's just a startling example, right, of new people coming to power who, uh, who don't have a deep political background and are trying to figure out how to put together a government. This happened during the transition between the election and uh, the inauguration that year. And they were just trying to staff the uh, incoming administration. They were in New York at Trump Tower and uh, Anthony Scaramucci, who was um, trying to help them put, put the pieces together, was just going to a TV appearance on Fox TV when he ran into the parents who, who just happened to recognize him and they sort of accosted him. And Scaramucci had come from a, a, a banking background, not a political background, but he, suddenly he had access to power. And, uh, and something about the parents struck him and he really did want to help so the, the parents make contact with you the following year, 2017, via uh, Bob Forsman, another banker with uh, close business relationships in Russia. But initially, you don't really see it as a promising story for a reporter. Certainly your editors don't see it as a promising story. It's too open-ended. It's too vague. 
it's not the kind of hard news story with an obvious ending that you would normally be covering. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, um, I look at it two ways. One way is, is the way that you look at it, which is sort of how I explain it in the book. And that is that, uh, you know, I work at the Wall Street Journal. We are a newspaper. So we're, uh, you know, we're focused on news. We're focused on uh, incremental events. We do like to step back now and again and take a, a wider sweep at things. But generally, the need here is for regular output by reporters. And when I heard about this, this case, I was fascinated by it instantly. But I also saw that it would require uh, an incredible amount of work and time and that there was really no prospect of our actually succeeding because what we needed to do was we needed to figure out what happened to Billy? And Billy was, let's put it bluntly, he was an FBI source lost in Russia, one of the most difficult uh, intelligence countries, I guess you could say, venues for, for any U.S. operative, whether or not Billy was over there for the FBI or not. So I knew that the degree of difficulty was very high. On the other hand, I would say that uh, doing this story would have been impossible without the support of the journal because my editors did finally agree that it was worth trying to do this. And they supported me through uh, many, many months of reporting. And it ultimately took uh, almost two years for us to, to publish the story. And of course, it's, you know, having the support of a newspaper with as high a global impact as the Wall Street Journal completely transforms the story, that it becomes something uh, which has a, a kind of a much, much more reach than ever it would have had otherwise. I think so. Yeah. I mean, one of the great things about working for the journal is that most people around the world have heard of it, at least people that we might run into to do stories about, and most people respect it. So it, it gives us uh, as reporters just incredible access and ability to, to chase down stories. And also when you, when you think about working in Washington, because that's part of the story too, here is uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, uh, Capitol Hill, and trying to find out who might bear some responsibility for Billy's disappearance, whether it's all on him or whether it's somehow shared between the FBI, him, and other agencies. Having the Wall Street Journal's name behind this inquiry really does matter. And, and you see that after we published the story, the two senators from Michigan, Billy's home state, and his uh, representative in the House of Representatives, they, um, they wrote a, a joint letter to the inspector general at the Department of Justice demanding, or at least requesting, uh, an investigation into Billy's case. So you go to Russia yourself. Where did the story lead you? Well, yeah, it was, uh, I went over there. Now, I had lived in Russia for, for a number of years, and so I, um, I didn't show up empty-handed. You know, I, had, I had friendships and contacts and uh, local knowledge that, that I hoped would at least uh, get me some answers. And at first, of course, it was very, very difficult. Uh, before I'd gotten on the plane, I was told by several people that uh, folks in Russia who, who knew about the case were warning people off of it um, quite bluntly which is not something you ever want to hear as you're heading into that. But I was determined to try and, and, and do my best. Uh, the, the family had hired years before a private detective in Moscow, and I linked up with him when I got over there. He had a lot of uh, contacts and knowledge, and I started trying to piece things together. It was not easy, and step by step, tried to make my way towards some kind of answer. Yeah, and I think as you kind of uh, point out towards the beginning of the book, actually, that the kind of sources that you're having to use, that uh, there's a lot of interviews, FBI, CIA, some Russian files, social media posts, 
But it, it's it's not just that. It's again we come back to this complicated, murky secret story involving multiple national security states. It's I mean it really is an incredibly difficult and complex story to try and piece together to find out exactly what happens to him. Yeah, certainly. And and uh, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned various theories. Because yeah, I, I had once I started my inquiry, people would come at me with different stories. I heard one story about how you know, Billy had been beaten up at a, at a volunteer fighter camp down in southern Russia, and then he'd been traded as sort of ba- or kidnapping, possibly as someone to trade for, for uh, Russians being held by on the Ukrainian side, and that Billy had been traded from one camp to another. And you know, I chased that for a while. I chased many, many different theories. But ultimately, and I, we don't give away the ending, of course, but ultimately we did figure out um, what had gone down and it was, it was actually very hard to believe, but, uh, but it was true. Yeah, it does have the, the complexity sometimes of a John le Carre thriller. And it struck me while I was reading, particularly, as you say, in the, the denouement to the book, that there is that John le Carre sense of moral equivalence kind of going on here. The ideas of uh, using civilians for intelligence work, the way in which they kind of become pawns in the uh, in the system. I mean, it does raise certain ethical problems, which are not just contemporary, but go really back into the Cold War, into the Second World War, have always been there in many ways with intelligence work. That's true. That's true. You know, I just think that our uh, law enforcement and intelligence bodies in the United States, they do require uh, oversight, constant oversight. And unfortunately, I don't think that there's uh, enough oversight, especially, I know we're many years out now, but especially after 9-11. I think that uh, at Congress, the administration, and largely the public has sort of allowed these agencies to you know, sort of do what they will, especially in the intelligence realm. And to your point, a lot of civilians do get scooped up, recruited, uh, especially into the FBI CHS program. And, and it's very easy for FBI agents and managers when they choose to malign these people and cast them aside because FBI agents and managers, one of their main tasks is to, um, is to protect the FBI and, of course, to protect their own careers. Now, obviously, this very specific story takes place in a, in a broader context. What do you think the wider implications of this particular story are for the way in which we think about Russia, Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, and the relationship of the United States with Russia? Well, that's a, another interesting aspect of Billy's story is that he allows us to tell the story of the evolution of U.S.-Russia relations and how they deteriorated. You remember... Uh, when, when Vladimir Putin came to power, we, in the West, we didn't know what to think of him. We even thought favorably of him. Uh, he, he developed something of a friendship with George W. Bush when he was president and visited with him at his ranch in Texas. After 9-11, Russia was instrumental in assisting the United States with its efforts in Afghanistan in terms of allowing, uh, bases into Central Asia and, and transit. Look where we are now. And Billy's story sort of takes us through that evolution over the relationship. Uh, and it also shows the cruelty and brutality of Russia's war in Ukraine. I don't want to give away the ending, but there are actually some very surprising moves at the end that uh, do speak volumes about the way that U.S. and Russian security services deal with one another. And finally, Brett, I mean, you've been thinking about Russia for more than two decades. In fact, your, your own interest in Russia goes back to 
the beginning of uh, this century of time, ironically, when most people were taking their eyes off Russia after the Cold War. But you know, I wonder, as you look at what's going on with the Putin regime, uh, with the war in Ukraine, how do you see this all playing out? It's very hard to know. Of course, we're all trying to answer that question. You know, there, there are many theories being bandied about. One, one is that uh, you know, if, if Ukraine can push Russia back to the original the line, sort of uh, February twenty fourth, two thousand twenty two, when when Russia did the full scale invasion of Ukraine, that that might be a moment to take a pause and uh, and attempt to bring the two sides to to the negotiating table. I don't know if that's something that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky could sell to his people who have sacrificed so much and performed so bravely on the battlefield. And uh, now we're in the midst of uh, this Ukrainian counteroffensive, and and the jury's out on on what that will actually achieve. Um, Ukraine is bent on uh, ejecting Russia from the entirety of its soil, and uh, and and why shouldn't they be? But at some point, you know, we, we have to calculate the uh, the mounting costs of this war, and also. Let's take into account uh, the pressures that Vladimir Putin is under and might yet be under domestically. I mean, there's so many different factors in play here, and it's it's very difficult to know how it'll end. So the book is Lost Son, an American Family Trapped Inside the FBI Secret Wars. It's written by my guest, Brett Forrest, and published by Little Brown. Uh, but for now, Brett, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.